Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to The Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. If you'd like to find out more about Strong Words and think you'd like to subscribe, take a look at the website. That's strong-words.co.uk. Don't forget the hyphen. This is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days dictating romantic novels set on the French Riviera or writing instructions on how to build your dream shed, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. And today my guest is a journalist and author whose latest book is a family memoir called Outside the Sky is Blue. This is a story of growing up in England in a family with a diplomat English father, Swedish mother and two older siblings. Her mother's nationality meant holidays were often Scandinavian. But when her sister travelled to Norway as a teenager, she came back a changed person and the entire family's orbit shifted to accommodate what became a diagnosis of schizophrenia. When my guest reached a similar age, her life also shot off on a strange trajectory as she became involved in what appears a quite strict evangelical sect, which governed much of her activity and social development over the next decade or so. Outside the Sky is Blue is therefore an account of the price extracted by a family having to accommodate serious mental illness and also the way in which her religious commitment was not repaid in terms of helping her deal with such demands or preparing her much for adult life. And in spite of it being a family once bursting with colour and life, it is also the very affecting story of how she became the last one left. So to talk about Outside the Sky is Blue and to share her five rules of writing memoir, I'd like to welcome the most excellent Christina Patterson. Christina, hi. Hello, the most excellent Ed Needham. That was quite a glittering introduction. I think I, I might need a copy of it so I can remember the plot. It's really, really good. <laughs> well, it's not a glittering introduction for a glittering book, um, I think. Uh, but when did it first occur to you that this has to go down on paper? Well, I want, I've wanted to write a version of this story for more than 20 years. I, I, I can't even remember exactly when it started, but... I, I think, to be honest, all my life I've wanted to be a writer and I didn't dare, I didn't feel I was allowed to be. I remember at university going to see a careers officer and said, I'd really like to be a journalist. And um, the careers officer said, oh, it's very competitive. And I thought, oh, well, I better not try then, which obviously is not the kind of story of grit and determination that journalists generally bring to these kinds of conversations. But um I had been rejected woundingly from Oxford. My three best friends at school had all got in. Uh, they had got, I'm not saying this is why, but they had got private. We went to a, a grammar school that turned comprehensive. My school used to do kind of proper Oxbridge teaching and then it didn't. And my three best friends all got um, private tuition to help them and I didn't and I didn't get in and I was heartbroken. And I think that kind of dulled my appetite for intense competition. So. I didn't allow myself really to think about writing 
for pleasure or a living or for anything other than academically for quite a long time. And it was before I became a journalist, but long after I started reviewing, that I thought I really want to tell the story of my family and in particular of my sister's mental illness. But and I've and I've sort of dabbled at versions of it over the years, but I wrote this version in the autumn of 2020, actually quite quickly, once I knew how to do it, once I had the structure and once I had the deal, I did it quite quickly. But before that, I had about 20 years of tinkering around. Right. So did it So it just poured out of you then or was it quite an, an anguished process? Um, I wouldn't say it poured out of me in that one of the really um, annoying things about publishing is that to write nonfiction, unless you write a book in advance, which is a very risky thing to do, unless it's a novel. Well, it's a risky thing to do anyway, because there's absolutely no guarantee of a deal. You have to sell it on the proposal. And the proposal really needed to include uh, an outline, a structure. And I think as, as, as someone who has earned my living as a journalist for many years, I think structure is the most difficult thing when when journalists move to write books. I think the structure, I can write um, a two and a half thousand word, a thousand word piece, uh, even a four thousand word piece. I was going to say easily. Actually, it's never easy. I don't think writing is ever easy, but write a hundred thousand word book. And that's really tricky, particularly when, as in this case, you've got five people's stories to tell. So the hardest part, and I agonized over this, was thinking, God, I've got five people's stuff to kind of weave together, five people's stories to weave together. In the end, I realized that chronologically was going to be the only way I could manage that, even though chronologically seemed a bit boring as a structure. So the it didn't write itself, but once I had the structure, then it was it was quite a relatively quick process, yes. And are you the kind of writer who likes to share as you go along and, and read bits aloud to your writing group or, oh, or was no. this very much produced in a Trappist silence? Oh, Trappist silence. I didn't, I haven't got anyone to share with anyway. My bloke wouldn't be particularly interested. <laughs> you know. um, he only read it quite recently, actually. Thank God he didn't mind it. But um, no, definitely not. I did in the, in the old days, um, I, I did a previous version of it. I wrote a full previous version of it. And I did show that to various long suffering friends who gave me helpful feedback. Of course, the friends who gave me any negative feedback, I was absolutely furious with, <laughs> yeah, which, shows that, which shows that actually you should never ask friends for feedback. And this time round, I, I didn't. Once I'd got the deal, I, I had a lot of toing and throwing with my brilliant agent, Sophie Lambert, on the proposal. Um, we didn't change anything core, but just the kind of, you know, sort of a, a bit of tarting up here or um, clarifying or whatever. But once I'd got the deal, I didn't show it to anyone until I sent the full thing to her and then to my editor. And I I couldn't be doing with all that input nonsense. I think it's fine if you have one person or maybe two people whose input you really respect. But I do know from having done, um, I did one year of a life writing MA many years ago. And actually I found getting the input from the people in the class and from the tutors, I shouldn't say this, but really unhelpful because everybody <laughs> everybody had different opinions. Quite. And yeah. It's such an objective business, isn't it? Uh, the, mm. You know, you, you, it's so easy to imagine the whole thing just collapsing as soon as people start sharing their unsought opinions. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing.
we're going to get into your five rules now, Christina, and they're excellent rules, I have to say. If anyone is intending to write a memoir, these are really genuinely useful. So your first rule, tell the truth. What are some of the biggest impediments to this in your experience? <laughs> I should probably say, for the sake of being truthful, that um, I don't have any rules, obviously, and I mm. don't have five rules, and I didn't write anything by five rules. But when you asked me to come up with five rules, I thought, actually, um, unconsciously, these probably are the five key rules I apply. So for the sake of being compulsively honest, which I am, um, I thought I should probably say that. Tell the truth. Well, the impediments are... In my case, not very big because I am so compulsively truthful. But um, but I imagine the impediments for somebody else would be, could be embarrassment, shame. Um, worrying about hurting people is a huge one. Now, by the time I got to write my memoir in this form, my immediate family were all dead. So obviously that was less of a concern than it might otherwise be but I think it remains a concern actually I think I think if you ever write I mean unless you really do have the grey and green splinter of ice in the heart or chip of ice in the heart I'm never sure which it is I think it's very hard to write about people you know and care about very truthfully without worrying about either hurting them if they're alive or sort of betraying their memory if they're not mm. alive so for me I think that's probably the most difficult part of it wanting to be truthful but also wanting to be in in this particular case I I wanted to kind of give do honor to my family I wanted to honor my family so I I, I do think that in memoir that may well be the most difficult one actually Okay. There's a point I've made, I've probably made on this podcast several times before. One of the things I absolutely agree with when it comes to writing, and especially is, is George Orwell's comment that autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. And, mm. you know, meaning that, you know, you, you have to confess, externalise something which is which you would really rather not. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, um, something that throws, puts a person in a bad light, but it's something which otherwise you wouldn't ordinarily, you know, commit to paper and share with other people. That's and, really interesting. Um, I didn't, I've not heard that. I mean, I'm a big fan of Orwell, but I haven't heard that before. That's really interesting. The, well, what was the, what was the toughest truth for you to tell and how did you manage mm. to write it down? Mm. God, all of, all of it. <laughs> it was all quite hard. <laughs> Um, I mean, um, well, I felt it was very hard to write about my sister's illness and in particular to write about, um, she, she wrote, when she was 20, she wrote, I, I came across, my mother gave me a diary of hers after my sister died and she wrote some terrible things about me. And it, obviously it was very difficult for me to read them, but I also really agonized about whether I should put those in the book because they don't you know they don't reflect well on her but she was ill and she was a sort of semi-child so in the end I did put those in and and that was I you know I kind of did it but that was quite difficult um my embarrassing love life uh 
is never a joy to write about. <laughs> and uh, I was completely horror struck when the sun when the Sunday I was very pleased when the Sunday Times got serial for the book. But when they sent me the bits, like, it, ne- it literally never occurred to me that in a book about mental illness and evangelicalism and and cancer and distress in all kinds that they, the bits that they would pick would be about my embarrassing love life. And um, the first in the original version that they were going to publish, it started off with with the sentence, I fell in love with a man at work. And I just felt completely sick. I mean, this, I, as far as I'm aware, this guy never knew that I fell in love. <laughs> and, and when I wrote it, you know, in in sort of in my bedroom, thinking that people would read it in their bedroom, realizing that you know, everybody who read the Sunday Times magazine was now going to know, including no doubt him, was now going to know that I fell in love with someone at work. That was a particularly bad moment. Um, so that is embarrassing and difficult. But I think possibly. Um, I think I may have got to the point in my life where I don't desperately, I mean, I think most, very few of us go through anything that other people haven't been through. And even our embarrassment and shame, generally speaking, other people have shared it. So that, although it's embarrassing, that's not the end of the world for me. I mean, that's different to someone whose view, critical view I respect kind of making mincemeat of my book that would distress me much more I care about I care what people think about the writing and the art I don't desperately care now what people think about me I have I feel I have enough people in the world who like me that that's fine you know I don't need to win over strangers particularly right well I definitely think you know just with this George Orwell comment you've got to say something disgraceful I think those people who do say something disgraceful are the ones that readers really respect and uh you know that when when writers kind of pull their punches or they suddenly get a bit coy you know at the key moment i think that's when when that can really destroy an autobiography's caliber so i think it's absolutely vital mm-hmm. that, that people do that anyway your second rule this is a, this is a rule that had never occurred to me but your second rule is use short words where you can uh, so please explain or should that perhaps be say what you mean um no, it is use short words where you can. And I think Orwell would endorse this one um, with all his stuff about language as a window pane and plainness and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I think when when you're young, there is, um, particularly when you've got, you know, a degree or degrees in literature and you've read a lot, there is a terrible temptation to go for the polysyllables just to show how clever and well-read you are. And um, I'm sure I did that uh, much more when I was young, but they're just not as powerful. They're just not as powerful. And I've just learned that, and I don't really know how or why, practice trial and error, I suppose, that using, in my case, this isn't a universal rule. These are my rules of writing. But for me, I've discovered that when I pare down the language and try to use short, punchy words, the, the prose has a punch that it doesn't have otherwise. And also, I think it allows emotion to come through much more than if you use very elaborate polysyllabic prose. I think polysyllables um, kind of are a blanket between the brain and the heart in a way. And I think mm-hmm. that if you use your short, sharp words well, then that is, they can become, as Orwell put it, a window pane. And I think the line of connection is much stronger. And 
I I do remember when I came back to work after having a mastectomy when I had cancer the second time and something happened to my writing and I don't really understand how or why this happened but I started there must have been some kind of inner sense of clarity or something and not wanting to mess around and you know wanting to kind of cut the crap etc and at that point when I started really trying to simplify my prose that was when I started getting emails from from men and women but blokes as well you know saying your column or whatever made me cry and I do get I, I got that from uh, the piece I wrote the, the extracts in the book in the Sunday Times I do often get men I mean not all the time obviously but I do I have over the years had a lot of men who say oh I don't normally cry but and I think that must be, I don't, I don't know, obviously, nobody knows exactly how you do what you do. But I do think that's to do with a kind of clarity. I think what I'm aspiring to is a kind of singing simplicity that has a kind of ringing clarity mm-hmm. at its best. I'm not saying I achieve it, but. Right. Are there writers who have you, who you have found particularly guilty of being, you know, syllabically overgenerous? Um, well, I'm sure we can think of one who's, name actually uh has monosyllables in both the first and second name beginning with a w and an s <laughs> can you guess <laughs> um, but i don't but that's, william shakespeare no, no, yeah no 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 <laughs> funnily enough i quite like william shakespeare i think he's quite a good writer i guess that's um, not will, will i was thinking of will self actually who is absolutely kind of ladles on the polysyllables but i haven't I mean, I'm probably talking about his journalism because I have. I don't think I've read any of his fiction. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of people who do that really well. I mean, um, James Joyce is not exactly, uh, you know, a one for the monosyllables, is he? Or indeed for the uh, succinctness. But um, I, I'm, I'm sure there are writers who who use plenty of polysyllables. <coughs> well, Henry James, actually, here's an example. He's not exactly one for the monosyllable either and I think he's a wonderful writer so I think I think you can do anything if you do it well but you just have to do it well yes quiet now then the third one your third rule is quite enigmatic you say earn the right to be read Mm. so what do you mean here and how do you do it um by practice 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 you serve your apprenticeship you don't wander around saying oh I've got a great story but sadly the world doesn't understand me and won't publish my book Mm. nobody has the right to be published um Nobody has the right to tell their story. Everybody has, everybody has the right to try to tell their story. Anyone can sit at home in their bedroom with a pen and paper or a phone or a, an iPad or whatever and write their story. But I'm constantly surprised by the number of people who seem to think that there's some alchemical process by which some vague thought in their head will transform into a best-selling book just like that. And even for those of us who've earned our living through writing for a long time, there are a hell of a lot of ducks you've got to line up. And lining up the ducks is quite onerous. And then you have to, even once you've lined them up and you've got the deal and you've written the book and the publisher likes it, there are then more ducks to be lined up to publicize the thing. Um, You know, it's a long, long, arduous process. I remember many years ago hearing Salman Rushdie say it's something, writers are people who finish books. And I thought, yeah, you know, they're not just the people who finish books. They're the people who find the market, who um, leap through the hoops, who take the rejection and who keep at it. So um, nobody has the right to be read. 
And you have to earn that by putting in the work. Mm. And unfortunately, a lot of aspiring writers don't seem to grasp that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I receive a lot of books, you know, publishing strong words. I get a lot of books for reviews sent to me. I'm sure you do too. And I don't look at them all, but I do get to see quite a few who are written by people who've, who have forgotten to be interesting, you know, or rather, you know, they're just so convinced that, you know, because they've taken the trouble to arrange the key in- incidents of their life in book form, that alone makes them interesting, you know, and uh, I don't know, I mean, do you find yourself sort of leaving books early because you, you feel they well to be honest I mean I don't I really don't know how you read the books all the books you read and may I say on the record I think Strong Words is a really fantastic magazine I I really think it's something special uh, not least actually not least because I think your your prose is punchy and direct and funny and uh absolutely not kind of TLSE sort of um uh you know kind of showing off the homework you know, Yes. Yeah, exactly. Homework. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, the key thing here is that reading should be a pleasure. And one thing I do think you learn as a journalist is, again, that you have to earn the right to be read. And and it's very useful to have a boss. It's useful to have an editor. It's useful to know that you have to hit a market. It's useful to have a word length. That's all about uh, accommodating someone else's needs and not your own. And um, I think that, yeah, but, I mean, of course, I get, I get sent lots of books, but I don't... Um, I must be a much, much slower reader than you, Ed, but I I hardly ever get to read. And I am unfortunately completely addicted to the news, which doesn't help, but I am also a journalist, so I sort of have to be. But um, I most of the books I, I read and have read for most of my adult life are professionally, either I'm reviewing them or I have to read them for, in the old days, an interview for a paper. Now I have a podcast and I usually got at least one book to read for the podcast. So I rarely get the get the, the joy of reading a book for pleasure and it is an absolute pleasure when I do and I wouldn't dream of sticking with a book that bored me if I was reading it for pleasure mm. what's your what's your cutoff point we've got a feature coming up in a in an issue of strong words to, to kind of asking people where how much of a book they're prepared to give I think this the shortest so far is about a paragraph <laughs> um yeah it could be I, I would probably give it a bit more than that but it would also depend on what had recommended it to me, whether it was reviews by someone I respected or a friend telling me or something. I think if it's hard work, I mean, obviously some art is hard work and that work is worth it, but it has to be worth it because we all have so many demands on our time now. Okay. Now, rule four, this is an absolutely brilliant piece of advice, and but it's easier said than done. So your fourth mm. rule is slice to the heart. So can you please, in full surgical detail, describe how I might slice to the heart? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but I know <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> um, I think, I think it's kind of, well, it, it does um, kind of tie in with the next rule, but it, it is, we want our hearts to be involved when we read and and we also want to kind of have a sense of what's the nub of this. I mean, which doesn't mean that a kind of Jamesian, Henry Jamesian complexity and subtlety and nuance and all of the tools of a, of the great novelist. That I'm not saying, oh, you know, put it on a table and make it clear. You know, that's obviously not what I mean. What I mean is that you have to involve the heart because 
art is about the heart. I mean, of course, there's a whole intellectual range that's involved as well. Um, it's ideally, I think, art is a perfect marriage of brain and heart, where you have a full, a full range of tools, which ideally should be semi-invisible to the reader, in order to um, to bring together the intellectual and emotional and psychological elements to make something that feels satisfying at every level because it's about layers and it's about richness but if you miss out the heart I think there will be something missing I have read things that have impressed me I thought well that's clever that's really clever uh, they've caught that very well um, I can think of for example newspaper columnists you can argue about whether you need to bring the heart into a column personally I think it helps to bring the heart into everything because we are creatures that operate with brains and heart all the time. And if you don't engage the heart, I don't think very many people operate at a kind of coolly, purely intellectual level. In fact, all the evidence shows that we absolutely don't, which unfortunately is why we may well be in the middle of World War III. But putting that to one side, I think, um, I think it just makes the experience richer and more satisfying and has more of a kind of thud if you mm. do involve the heart and technically that's it's hard to say how to do that but I do think it's something to do with that clarifying it's being having a sense of what you're trying to do having a sense of the kind of human the human cost the human implications the human price the feelings all of that yes I mean I, I think obviously and it works doesn't it you've made men and women burst into tears up and down the country and <laughs> And it's not, uh, you know, it's not a sentimental book in any way. Is it? It's not a maudlin book, and yet it's very, very affecting. And I just wonder if, if it's perhaps kind of going through it and taking out all those cliches that make something sentimental or make something maudlin. It's a, it's right. It's a, it's a taking away rather than. It is a taking away. It is taking away. And by the way, I haven't had emails from people around the country about the book saying it made them cry because it's barely been out. I mean, I have had some, but. Um, the, the, the men who were made to cry, I think, were from the Sunday Times piece, which were extracts from the book. But um, but I'm, I'm sure, I hope that there will be lots of emails from men sobbing around the country over yes. the next few weeks. <laughs> but I, I completely agree that it's about the pairing away. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Tear stained letters on their way. But, to but also, sorry, to follow up on something else you said, um, you have to cut out the cliches. If there are cliches in there. You're doing a bad job, and um, and they and we don't. And the whole point about cliches is that they it means tired and well worn. Something that's tired and well worn is never going to move you. Yes, and in your rule, your fifth rule is quite a, is a very interesting rule, given you know that the nature of the subject matter. You know, this is a very uh, sad story in many ways. But you say make the reader laugh, and you say and cry in brackets. But why is it important to make them laugh? Well, I, I suppose it's not important for everybody to make people laugh, but it's important for me. And isn't that a good question? I don't know the answer to that. I, I suppose it's to do with that emotional palette of life, really, that I, I just think um, the world is kind of, you know, beautiful and hideous and baffling and fascinating and cruel and sad and amazing, all the emotions really, and also very funny. And, and I do think that, um, 
I think humor is an incredible gift that humans have. I don't know whether other animals have it. I just reviewed a book called The Meat Paradox, which um, is all about eating meat and the kind of psychological components of eating meat, which made me think more about, you know, what animals feel. And it'd be interesting. I'm not an animal lover, but it'd be interesting to know whether they do have a sense of humor, because I do think that a sense of humor is one of the things that kind of keeps us sane in a way, isn't it? And and also there's a kind of moral, the moral vision implicit in satire. You think of someone like Swift and his modest proposal. Um, I don't know. I mean, when I was, as you know from the book, when I was a small child, my parents called me the sunshine girl because I was very always smiling, you know, fat little baby and toddler sort of, you know, tripping around laughing. And, um, and then that changed, I think, largely with my sister's illness and then you know I unfortunately gave my life to Jesus and there wasn't very much of a sense of humor around um I just think laughter makes life better and um so if you can make someone laugh or more likely smile then do yes quite I mean I, I certainly think um there might be a case to be made for animals having a sense of humour. I was once walking past a, a farm and there was a very um, lugubrious looking horse in a field in front of the farm and a sheepdog. And the sheepdog looked at me and having looked at me, it then went up to this uh, horse, jumped up and uh, bit the horse's tail, kind of swung <laughs> from its tail. And uh, when this obviously enraged the horse and it went charging after the dog and the dog knew that it knew that it could get under the fence just in time before the horse got to it. So it's clearly, uh, you know, t teasing yeah. this creature for my benefit, you know, to say, oh, watch this kind of thing. So uh, I had to change my mind completely about animals. How, how very, how very generous of them to put on a little show for you. I know. Here's another one. Here's the, here comes the audience. So, but I also think a little bit of laughter goes a long way. You know, readers. It definitely makes readers think. You know, I I like this person, and I'd I'd like more of that. And there's no better way of of getting readers on your on your side. You know, and so one of my favourite bits is when your religious group tells you that you you have to go and proselytise in pubs, and one of the pubs they send you to is the Colhern in Earl's Court, which is one of the most famous gay pubs in London at the time. So even though it's not a laugh out loud scenario, it's just the sort of comic coming together of this naive young evangelical teenager and the bar full of uh, leather guys. It's just funny in itself, you know, and it made me realise you don't always need a punchline or a hilarious pratfall or some massive sort of self-deprecation. Some things are just amusing to think of. They don't, they don't need any more that it's just well this happened and it is inherently amusing somehow well thank so. you thank you I mean of course it, that was very difficult to write about because obviously it's a horrifying thing to have done to have gone into gay pubs to proselytize it wasn't by the way particularly about I mean we we did we were brainwashed into thinking that homosexuality was wrong as as was all sex outside marriage but it wasn't particularly that to convert them from being gay it was to convert them from being from going to hell as everybody was except us um to to you know kind of giving their lives to the lord so although it sounds incredibly discriminatory and it was a horrific thing to do it wasn't as discriminatory as people might think it was but oh my god walking in i, I remember walking into that pub and it, it, it there were the days when it, almost everyone wore black leather and they were wearing these black peat cups caps and chains and um 
yeah, it was uh, quite quite a thing to do. <laughs> and then going up to some bloke and going, do you come here often or whatever it was I said, I can't remember now. But <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, I mean, certainly customer reviews are very much of the I laughed, I cried variety. So it seems you hit the hit the double bullseye there. So congratulations. Now, two questions I always ask all authors. First is uh, how many words do you write a day? What is what is for you the uh, the sort of correct number? Well, well, most days absolutely nothing. It drives me mad, and when I don't <laughs> write, I feel terrible. And it's not it's not because I don't want to. I, there's just so much rubbish to do, isn't there? Sort of endless emails, admin, all the rest of it. But um, when I've got a book on the go, and I've only written two two books, um, well, it, it all depends. So yesterday I wrote a book review, and the writing it was about a thousand words. The writing took a few hours but it's not the writing that takes the time with book I find book reviews even now after 30 years I don't know again I don't know how you do what you do because I find them really difficult even now and um uh so the the kind of process it's not the for me it's not the writing I can write quite fast it's the thinking and the kind of drawing together the threads and that applies if if um if I'm writing an up an interview or anything it's the kind of the the reams of research you have to bring into it that um that take the time but I can if I'm I can write a feature in a day I haven't done this for ages but I could write 3,000 words in a day generally speaking it it all I mean I'm a I'm a journalist so it's all about the deadline it's all about Mm -hmm. the deadline if I have to write 3,000 words by tomorrow I will but most days I write nothing yes everything's possible with a deadline I find Mm. and uh, my other point my other thing is that uh, one of the few things that almost all writers have in common one of the things that binds all writers together is that hardly any of them actually like writing where do you stand on that oh I love writing I absolutely love writing actually um so, for example, when I do a book review, which is currently my kind of key form of journalism, um, the writing is is fine. It's I, I have this arduous process, which is ridiculously sort of inefficient, where I read the book, I sort of scribble on it, underline it, and then I go through the book again and I write loads of notes, which I'm sure is mostly unnecessary. And then the writing is kind of okay. So I love writing. I don't find the writing difficult. It's the other stuff around it, the kind of, yeah. And so if I can, if I could just, if I could sit and write what's in my head, I mean, there is an element to the crafting that is always painful in any writing, I think. I mean, it's just hard work. But generally speaking, I love writing. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Christina, so much. I urge everybody to uh, go and buy Outside the Sky is Blue by Christina Patterson before you do anything else. It's absolutely magnificent. And uh, congratulations on writing such a fabulous book. And thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Ed. An absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 